This past week has been quite a wild ride. How many know what that wild ride looks like? I was kind of reminded of the time that I grew up with horses. We were horse poor. My family, my aunt, our properties were adjoined, and we had over 21 horses. It's a lot of horses. And I remember one time in particular, I went to ride a horse and got on the horse, and all of a sudden, the horse started bucking. And the next thing I know, the horse was out of control. And, and if it hadn't have been for the Walmart manager unplugging the machine, <laughs> I would have ended up out in the parking lot somewhere, just saying. I get my material from Steve Montgomery. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Best stuff ever. Well, this morning, I, before I actually start where I want to go, I want to address the red heifer in the room. I mean, elephant in the room. Last week, our guest speaker, I, I love Kenneth Holder to death, but he, he shared something about the red heifers, which is, in, in, in Israel, that is a thing. That's, that's a thing that they have been part of their their law for years, the, the Purification Act, all that, the red heifer, ashes, all of that. But really what it comes down to is eschatology. And even in this room here, when it comes to eschatology, that is the study of end times. It, it is that part of theology that's concerned uh, with death, with judgment, with the final destination of our souls, eschatology. And at the end of the day, in this room alone, we're probably going to have people somewhere in different places on that chart when it comes to end times and how they think it's going to come down. Am I right? And let's just be honest. Let's be fair. You know, depending on what camp you grew up in, I think when I think of the word eschatology, I immediately go to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has 21 chapters, and every one of those chapters point to something that's happening in the future. And because we're not there yet, we really don't know with absolute certainty how it's all going to go down. In fact, I was talking to Max the other day about this, and there are some things that I don't know if we'll ever figure out because it probably isn't in our department. I just know this, guys, that Jesus is coming back. I know that we will experience different types of reactions. If you went to Israel right now and you found a Christian born-again Jew over there who was, who, who was being under the influence of all the stuff that's going on, it would be hard to tell them that there's nothing hard coming. Someone who lives in a third world country, that yet the hard times are yet to come and they're being tortured for their faith. I, I don't know. Here's my heart, guys. I just want to feed sheep. I want to do what God called me to do. And part of that biggest thing that I have on my heart is that Matthew 28, that I want to go and I want to make disciples. The word, this was Jesus' command, not get caught up in all the weeds and all the other stuff going on, but do what he told us to do. He made it quite clear, and we're going to go into this really deep. He made it quite clear what he was going to do, and he wanted his disciples to do in his place. And that was to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's the key. And teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. In other words, everything that I have taught you, guys, I want you to go teach others. Jesus said, teach them to teach others. Right? That's what we're called to do. We're called to teach others to teach others. And he says, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It goes on, it goes deeper. We're going to get into that. But that's not where I really wanted to go this morning. But I had to start there just to kind of clear the water. Eschatology, study of end times. Myself personally, I have a very victorious view of eschatology. But that doesn't mean that it's not going to be bumps in the road and it's not going to be hard and it's not going to be challenging. It means that God's already won this. We are the victors. We are. So stop being victims. We're the victors, right? So we should teach others how to live victoriously. 
So when I began writing notes for this week and beyond, I, I just was pondering some thoughts that had to do with footings and foundations. When you go to buy a home, one of the first things is part, if, especially if you're going to get a conventional loan, and Danny, correct me if I'm wrong, you have to get a home inspection, right? And the home inspection, they just don't drive up and go, yeah, it looks good, and then leave. <laughs> no, depends on what inspector you get. Next thing you know, their feet disappear under your house. We sold a house in town, and, and, and this family wanted to qualify for a certain loan, and they asked me if I'd be patient with the process. Oh, my goodness. The inspector crawls, and I'd been under the house. I'd done so much remodeling, but he crawled under the house with a toothpick and a flashlight, it seemed like. I mean, he was digging deep to find something, but he, he didn't find anything. He said, wow, this is really good, strong, whatever. So at the end of the day, when we go to buy a place, the first thing that happens is there's an inspection that goes back to the very foundation, the very footings of the home, okay? So when, I, when it comes to discipleship and training and all that, to me, we have to take it back to the very beginnings. A lot of you are very mature in the things of God. Some of you are more mature than others in other areas, but some of you have some problems even still with your footing and your foundation. How many are honest and say, yeah, I missed a few steps? Yeah. Well, that's what we want to do. We want to go back and regird those and come underneath and help support those because when the winds of adversity blow, they're blowing right now and they're going to continue to blow. I don't want to see you sliding 300 feet on your ear because you missed something. Do, do you see my heart? That's what I want for you. So this morning, I want to start with something that I think is so foundational. And, and before, bolt the doors, please, before they leave. D just kidding. I want to talk about money. I want to talk about finances. I want to talk about your resources. Because that is the very footings that we need to start with. If we cannot handle those right, something's askew in our relationship. Something's askew in the way we walk out our life. And we're going to see why this morning. Now, before you hear the T word, tithe, and freak out and run for the door, old covenant, that was under the old covenant. The new covenant says I don't have to tithe. Just set that aside for a moment, okay? Let's just get to the end. And I hope you find something really new. But this is interesting. When you start to talk, talk about money in church, uh, there's something that really weird and unusual happens. People start to get squirmy. <laughs> People get uncomfortable. Gary starts grabbing his wallet and holding on. No, I'm just kidding, Gary. <laughs> you put your checkbook and you slide it. Oh, don't let him see that. I'm just saying, kind of humorously, that, that it does. A lot of people start to get uncomfortable when we talk about money. And money is one of those things that most people really don't like to talk about. How many of you in here really enjoy talking about money? Lots of hands. I'm not trying to meddle, but I will a little bit this morning. Somehow there are some who feel that when you talk about money in church, somehow it's worldly. It is unspiritual. In fact, they'll run to 1 Timothy 6.10 and they'll misquote it. They'll say, money is the root of all evil, pastor. That's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. So money in itself is this static thing that can be used for all kinds of things, right? But honestly, you know, as I was writing this out, I was thinking about some of this ill feeling towards money and finances is legit because we've seen far too much manipulation when it comes to finances and money, especially from pulpits around the world. The TV evangelist, give, and others. How many have seen those? How many have gotten them in the mail? I mean, there's just a sea of those that come to us all the time. But let me tell you something. I hope you hear my heart. God never manipulates or controls anyone, not even their finances. God will not twist your arm and break it off. Well, there was that one time. No, he won't do that. What God will do is he will guide you to a place where you begin to search your heart. You know, I wrote here at the same time, even when ministers, preachers, teachers talk about money with godly perspective, there are some believers who get irritated because they feel that the church has no business in their business. But listen, 
People who say that money isn't appropriate to talk about, it's not appropriate for pastors and ministers to talk about, are going to have to set aside much of what Jesus said during his ministry here on earth. In fact, Jesus had more to say about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. Did you know that? He had more to say about money, finances, resources than hell and heaven combined. The only subject that Jesus talked about more than money was the kingdom of God. He did. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Mari, did you see my notes ahead of time or something? This is the parable of the unjust steward. Jesus calls us to, calls managing money the least of our responsibilities. Let's turn there and let's read. I, I, I debated on whether to read the whole, a lot of this or a little bit of this, but I'm going to kind of paraphrase here for a moment. And first I want to read verses 6, uh, uh, Luke 16, 10 through 11 out of the NIV. And it basically says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, now mammon here is a reference where money is being personified as a god that is worshipped. Okay? So, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Now, I want to read this out of the Passion because I think it really puts a spin on it. And, and Jesus is talking to his disciples about a very rich man who hired a manager, and the manager was cheating him, and the manager was about to get canned, and, and, and he freaked out, and he went out, and he, he pulled all these favors in, reduced some bills and stuff. It was a really clever thing to do. In fact, the, the, the rich man kind of commended the guy, uh, the manager, for doing this. But at the end, Jesus continued. I'm going to read this. This, is, I believe, is in first, verse 8, 9, verse 8. Jesus continued, remember this, the sons of darkness interact more wisely than the sons of light. Use the wealth of this world to demonstrate your friendship with God by winning friends and blessing others. Then when it runs out, your generosity will provide, will provide you with an eternal reward. You cannot outgive God. There's a spiritual principle here that's so deep, so deep. Give and it will be given. Verse 10, the one who, is, who faithfully manages the little, in the NIV it says the least, he has been given, <clears throat> manages the little he has been given, will be promoted and trusted with greater responsibilities. That's just a principle that works. God sent so many principles and concepts and precepts spinning into the skies and the stars that at the end of the day, even the world can tap into some of those, and they still work. They just do. And this is one of those. Those, But those who cheat with the little they have been given will not be considered trustworthy to receive anymore. If you have not handled the riches of this world with integrity, why should you be trusted with the eternal treasures of the spiritual world? And if you've not proven yourself faithful with what belongs to another, why should you be given the wealth of your own? Be given wealth of your own. Ooh. Is it impossible for a person to serve? It is impossible for a person to serve two masters at the same time. You can't do it. You will be forced to love one and reject the other. One master will be despised and the other will have your loyal devotion. Your choice between God and the wealth of this world is no different. You must enthusiastically love one and definitely reject the other. Now, Jesus, when he made this comment about what is least, Jesus didn't mean that we should ignore money because it's insignificant. What he's saying here is, is that it's the least of our responsibilities. He, is, he means that, and I believe that he's saying that money is the first thing that we need to get sorted out. Our finances our resources, all of that. We got to get this sorted out. 
If we, if we can't handle our money properly in godly ways, I wrote, then we're going to have problems in all the other areas of our life because we can't serve two masters. It doesn't work. You say, okay, pastor, why are we going here? Why are you talking about money? Here's why. Prophetically on the horizon, you look around the world and, and, and your income, your paycheck is, is shrinking. The money you bring in compared to what's going out for expenses, groceries, gas, and all that. It's going up, isn't it? And at the end of the day, people are pulling back and they're finding, them less, they're finding themselves being less able in their mind to give. Yeah, they pull back. I think we're entering into a season where if we can become those generous people that God is calling out, and I'm not talking about just your wallet, I'm talking about your time and your other resources. If we can learn to give, give those things away, crazy, crazy ways, God's going to honor that, and you'll never have without want. Is this making sense? Today, well, I wrote, so if our understanding of money in part lays the foundation of our spiritual lives, then maybe a deeper understanding about what God says about money, about our finances, about our resources, is something that we need to take, we need to take a deep look at. So that's kind of what we're doing this morning. Today, if you were to thumb through the internet and go through books, all, you'll find a plethora of information about, and it's all over the maps, when it comes to the word tithe. Now, before you get freak out on me and say, that's the old covenant, that's the old law, it's just, just think of it, the word tithe for a moment. On one hand, you, you have people who say that tithing is just an Old Testament principle. That's true. Tithing is and was under the Old Testament. And, and it doesn't apply to us today, they say, because we're not under the, the old covenant, we're under a new covenant. Okay? But then you have people way on the other side that says, that God punishes us today because we don't tithe. How many have heard those sermons? I've heard those sermons where, where hey, uh, if you don't tithe, God's going to make your tires blow out. God's going to make your doctor bills shoot through the roof. You're going to find out you had dipsy doodleitis, and it's going to cost you millions to have it repaired. I have no idea. what Steve Montgomery might know what that is. I don't know. But... <laughs> Oh, my goodness. And here's the classic. I've heard this preached so many times in churches in my past before I was here, and that was that old Malachi 3, you are robbing God. I heard that many times. You are robbing God if you're not giving your tithe to the church. Are you serious? What happened in Malachi 3 was Israel was breaking covenant by withholding their tithes. They were. That, that's where this comes from. In fact, in fact, in verse 7 of Malachi 3, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and you have not kept them. In other words, you turned away from my laws. You haven't kept them. And then he says, return to me. Here's what's happening. Israel's just getting slammed with famine, all kinds of stuff's going on. Nothing's working for him. Everything's falling apart. But God says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And then here comes the quote. You, were, you will a mere mortal have robbed God, yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And then God says, in tithes and in offerings. You were under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Ouch. We'll circle back around to that later. But I think as disciples and as followers of Jesus under the new covenant, I want to help you guys understand and maybe get a handle on some of these principles that I think will help you navigate these waters of finances as we move into the future, okay? I want to see you guys solid in this. I don't want to see it be a worry. I want to see things work for you. I want to see you prosper. This isn't a get-rich thing. It's just simply, as we honor God, He honors us. I've never understood His, uh, his economics and that, but I know it works. How many understand that one? You just honor Him and He honors you. And I've watched your lives, many of you that I know, I've watched as you've honored God, God is taking care of you. Does that mean you're rich and you're driving a Lamborghini? No. It means that everything keeps Alan Witcherly. 
he wouldn't mind me telling this story, but years ago, we were sitting around talking about giving and sharing. How many knew, know Alan Witcherly? He's a great big, giant, gentle human being. He is amazing. Loves the Lord. He, he's so huge. He plays a ukulele, and it kind of disappears somewhere in his hands. His hands are gigantic. They're like baseball mitts. That's Alan. Loves the Lord. Great brother. And they were sitting around one day, and Alan, you go to his place, and all of his equipment just looks like it's 400 years old. His trucks, everything's always running, though. It's weird. It's always working. So one day someone asked, he said, hey, Alan, how much do you tithe? Now, don't freak out on that word, because we'll explain this in a moment. How much do you tithe? And he goes, well, I certainly don't tithe 10%. And they were like, ooh, Alan, I tithe 20 or more percent. It's like, What? And he goes, because my tractors just keep running, my tires stay inflated, I get jobs on the phone, everything just seems to work. In other words, he lived from a generous heart, and God honored that. So, I want to quickly, quickly go down, because I smell pancakes, I want to quickly go down the list here, and I want to talk about tithe in the Old Testament for a moment, just so we have a handle on it. If you were to flip through the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see that it was incredibly common for all the Israelites to tithe. In fact, it was a command of God. It comes from the Hebrew word asar, which means a tenth, or a tenth or a percent, ten percent. And, and most of the churches that, as a young boy I grew up in, they always taught along this lines that our tithe was ten percent of our income whether it's gross or net. I mean, that got argued all over the place. But at the end of the day, that's mainly what they said. It's 10%, so $100, it would be $10 that you would tie to the church. But here's the deal. This is a massive oversimplification of what the tithe is in the Bible itself. Way oversimplifies it. The, the tithe for the nation of Israel was much more, much, much, much more than simply giving 10% off the top of what they made. In fact, Leviticus 27.30 says, give us a clear picture of what the tithe is. It says, every tithe of the land, whether it's the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. It all belongs to God. And Alan's heart was, God's going to get it one way or the other, so I just give generously, <laughs> and everything keeps running, and everything works fine. And those of you who know Alan, he has a heart bigger than a boss. It's amazing. But here's a quick summary of tithing in the Old Testament, just real fast. The first tithe we find is in Genesis 14. It's this incredible story of Abraham's nephew, Lot, lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah gets taken over by these kings, and they take Sodom and Gomorrah, all of their possessions, and they take them away. And Lot is held and taken captive. Abram didn't like this. Now, these are kings that have huge armies. So what does Abram do? This is how much he trusted God with the vision that God had in his life, that you will become a father of many nations. Here's, here's where, to me, it's just a great snapshot of where his heart was at. But he says, he says this, get, get, get me, I'm going to paraphrase here, but get me 318 of my best well-trained soldiers. My best well-trained, wait, wait a minute, did I read that right? Yeah, 318 trained men against armies. Because he knew he was right, and he went out, and he took back what was stolen. And he brings back the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He brings back their possessions. He brings back his nephew, Lot. And what does he do? He stops in this little town, and he actually, Melchizedek, this is where, where we see him kind of come on the scene here. He gives him 10%. He is the high priest. He gives him 10% of everything that he got. All the booty, he gives him 10% of it. One little caveat here, this was before the law. Way before the Mosaic law. But that's what he did. He gave 10%. Then you have Numbers 18, 26. I'm going to rattle these off quickly. Speak to the Levites and say to them, when you receive from the Israelites the tithe, I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth of the tithe as the Lord's offering. Deuteronomy 14, 24. Set aside a tenth of your crops and all your produce. Malachi 3.8, we just read that one. This is the consequences of not tithing. So all throughout the Old Testament, we see that the tithe was required under Mosaic law. It was the law. 
You had to give. You were forced to give in a sense. And if you didn't, bad things happened. That's just how it was set up. There were three main tithes. Now listen, the, the, the nation of Israel wasn't just a flat 10% like we think. In fact, look, let's take a look at all the tithes that were required, and we're, we're still in the Old Covenant, all the tithes that were required of each of the Israelites to pay. Three main ones. You had the first tithe that was given yearly, 10% was given to support the Levites and the priests. It took care of all of the churchy stuff. That's what it did. The next tithe was the, was the festival tithe. It was a yearly tithe, the 10%. It was given to support all of the religious festivals. And then you had another tithe on top of that. Are you doing the math here in your head? There was another tithe on top of that that was every third year, and it was called the poor tithe. It was a tithe, 10%, given to the poor every third year. So you do the math. I got eight fingers here. So do, 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 at the end of the day, it was, it was something like 20 to 30%. Right off the top, they tithe. Whoa! Yes, yes. We tend to assume, I wrote here, that the Old Testament, well, I reread that. It's important to remember that tithing was first and foremost an act of worship, which was commanded by God. But it was also the whole nation of Israel, it was how they were funded. You could say this really was kind of their tax system. That's kind of how it worked for them. But Israel just didn't pay tithes. On top of tithes, they also had offerings. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, my head's spinning. They gave 10, 20, maybe 30%, but on top of that, they gave more? Of course. These, 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 um, these offerings, like I, I wrote here, they were above and beyond voluntary offerings. They give them out of a free will, out of their heart. They include offerings for sin, offerings for peace, offerings for dedications, among others. While they were not directly commanded, these offerings supplemented the required tithes. Man. Whew. But there's another important detail I wrote here we haven't looked at. The tithing is only ever mentioned in the Old Testament as part of the Mosaic Law. It's part of the Old Covenant. That's where you're going to see tithing mentioned. Yes, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament law I wrote. And Christians are no longer bound to uphold it. But more of that in just a moment. It's easy to thumb through the Bible. It's easy to see all the examples of tithing. And, but, but today, many of the teachings that we're hearing today that surround tithes and offerings, I think they're twisted. And I think they're very misrepresented. Now you're going, woohoo! I don't have to give anything. <laughs> I do not have to give any. Well, I get to... Keep my wallet at home. My checkbook stays on my dresser. Uh, not so fast. Is tithing in the New Testament? That is the big question. Is tithing in the New Testament? Anecdotally? Mari? See, see what I'm talking about? It's all over the charts here. But I'll tell you, after Jesus died and he rose to, into heaven, I don't think that we're going to find one single instance where the apostle instructed any of the New Testament believers to give a certain amount. Right? Can we all be good with that? We, don't, we just don't see it. That doesn't mean that there weren't special offerings because we do find those. We're collecting money for this. When I come here, hand me that. We'll t I'll take the money over there, right? So, so again, in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, after Jesus ascended into heaven, we just can't find a reference to giving a certain amount. Oh, my goodness, what do we do? Well, we turn to 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Turn there really quick.
I hope I'm not losing you. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Huge word there, cheerful giver. Listen, instead of being pressured by a certain amount, instead of being pressured by some kind of legalist system, we are invited at this moment to give freely from the heart and not under pressure. Maybe the biggest difference I wrote here is that in the Old Testament, the tithe was to support the work of God's people. And it also funded the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, we don't see the same command to tithe, to give. We don't see this command that's set down because Jesus, I believe, gives us a new perspective on our offerings. Overall, I wrote here, the New Testament approaches the topic of giving much differently. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament was much more black and white. It told you where to give. It told you how to give. It told you how much to give. The New Testament, for those of you that struggle with things being gray, I'm sorry. When it comes to tithing, it's a little more gray. But it's not a bad way. I think really what the New Testament does is raise the bar totally raises the bar. Giving isn't something we check a box off. It's not. Giving gives us us an opportunity to examine ourselves and see if we're living in light of what Jesus has done for you and I. That's what giving, I think, should be all about. So grateful, Jesus, for what you did. I will give some of my time here. I will give some of my resources there. I will help that person because I'm so thankful for what you've done for me. I think it could be summed up, I wrote here, what tithing in the New Testament looks like. I would say, be generous. Be generous. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. I left that verse 6 out for just a moment. It says, but I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So, let each one gives as he proposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. I'm telling you guys, at the end of the day, God is the giver of the increase. I can't tell you how many times in my wife and I's life we've, we've just, and this is our story, we've just gave because we felt we wanted to. We felt we could. We felt honored to be able to give. And it wasn't just our resources because we weren't wealthy. But what's interesting is if you study the history of some of the wealthiest people in the nation and their beginnings, they all were tithers. They all gave money to, to the works of God, all of them. And, and you know, it, it's easy to come up with, well, when I have some money, I'll give some money. Are you kidding me? We're going to hit that in a moment. What Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 is he's saying we're to be generous. Why? Because of what God has been to us. God has been incredibly generous to each and every one of us. How can, how, can I get an amen for that? And I think because of what God has done for us, we should be generous with our finances. We should be generous with our resources. We should be generous with our time. Amen? And I think the reality is the New Testament never does tell us how much to give, but it tells us to be generous. For some, you may give 5%. For some, you may give 50%. I mean, the list. some of those early Procter & Gamble, some of those guys that started Quaker Oats, actually gave 90% and lived off 10. Do the math. Do the math. That's faith. Now, I've talked to other business guys over the years and said, what do you think about a reverse tithe? Are you kidding me? It's a mind stretcher. It's a mind blow. I'm not saying thus saith the Lord. I'm saying that's what those men put their heart in. Not all of them did that, but some did. Again, you're back to tapping into a principle. This is all God's. I'm just a steward, and I want to manage it really well. And you watch these guys prospered off the hook. So 
So I wrote here, that's a big shift from the more stringent rules of the Old Testament. It raises the bar, yes. But being generous, again, isn't just some box that we check off. It's a heart that we cultivate. And I believe that every follower of Jesus should learn how to be generous. And again, if you're just hearing money, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying your resources, your time, your energy. Yes, even part of your finances. You know, I wrote here, while Christians aren't under, the, under that Old Testament law that commands us to tithe, we are called to live, I believe, and to give generously of all that we have. But listen, this isn't tied to our salvation. It's what we do in response to salvation. I am so grateful for what God has done for me. I am so grateful that my heart is filled with a hope that I have a place in eternity. And I will serve Jesus the rest of my life with all of my heart. It's not always gonna be from here. God, God is tugging at our hearts somewhere down the road to not resign but reassign. God's reassigning us somewhere down the road. We, my wife and I feel that in our hearts. That's my heart. And I know that we will live the rest of our lives giving and serving generously. And I'm gonna tell you, we have walked that and we've learned so much that you can't outgive God. Now you can be foolish with your resources. I'm just gonna give it all away. There are wise counselors that help you manage and navigate these waters. Trust them. Lean into the real good solid people who have a handle on their finances. I'm telling you, that's just wisdom. But at the end of the day, mm, God is so good. So what's generous for you? You're going to have to decide. But I have a feeling, overall, it's going to be more than just 10%. Let's see, I put in, I tied this, and I put in two hours here, and I did that. Okay, I gave my 10%. If that's your heart, God doesn't want your money. He doesn't need it. He's after your heart. So I wrote four things really quick. If you want to put some handles on all this, what can I do? What's some practical application of how we can apply this word to what, what we need to be doing now and into the future, okay? One, practice generosity. It's that simple. Just learn how to give. Not only of your finances, but give of yourself. Give of your time. Any other resource that you have. Maybe you have a skill set that somebody could use. Maybe you're really good at volunteering and working through logistical things. Give some of that away. I want us to be known as generous people. We live from a generous heart because of what Jesus has done for us. Give joyfully. This is where it gets tricky. Giving isn't something that you're forced to do or you're coerced or your, your arms twisted behind your back. It's something that should be done with joy. And if we really believe and we're truly grateful for what Jesus has done for us, this shouldn't be an issue. It should be easy to give joyfully. And I'm talking about in all areas. Please don't just, just don't zero in on money, okay? Because it's so much bigger than that. If you don't find yourself joyful when you give, maybe you should stop. Put your money back in your pocket. Put your time back where it went. Put your generosity somewhere and search your heart. Saying, God, why am I having a hard time letting go of this to serve that? After all, God is after our heart, right? Number three, give from your heart. Give from your heart. Again, Jesus talked more about money often. In fact, it's one of the biggest things he talked about next to the kingdom of God. And I think the church, we should be talking more about resources and how to manage them. We had some great classes here Doug Perkins in June taught some really great classes and just how to work your finances and be a good steward over them. I would love to see a champion stand up and say, I'd like to do that again. It's needed. I, I can't do it all. But if I can inspire someone to stand up and say, I want to help people with their finances. I want to help people just get it together so it's not all over the charts. So at the end of the month, when I go to pay a bill, the money's there. That's how that works. I want us to Focus, in terms of giving from the heart, we need to focus on our heart and not on our lack of, not on the guilt, I don't have anything to give. Focus on your heart. 
Look at the widow that went. She gave these little things that she had. She gave it all. Where the others would step up and toot a horn and blow a whistle and look at me and throw money in like it was crazy. God is always looking at the heart. Number four, give to those in need. I, I think the New Testament makes it really clear that followers of Jesus, if that's who you are, if that's what we are, we should be generous and that we should be giving to those who are truly in need. Now, there's a lot of scams going on, so you have to be wise in this one, man. But there are some people really needy around us. First John kind of gives us an idea, 317. First John 317, NIV says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? There was a brother that went to church here, loved that guy, for years, and heard a story about him. He would give and help people, but he never wanted anyone to ever know what he was doing. And one time, there's this little old lady who would drive by her house all the time, and she had this just trashed, clapped out old lawnmower that barely ran. And he thought, I can fix this. So he went and bought a new lawnmower. Put it on her lawn, knocked on the door, ran, hid, stood back, and she came out. And she's like, So many ways we can bless people. We can bless people in the house of God. I think taking care of family is priority. But there's so many people that we just drive by that maybe God is speaking to your heart saying, stop, 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 stop. Why don't you go buy them something to eat? Why don't you help them? Now, I typically just don't hand somebody cash. I don't. I will ask them, is there a need I can help you with? Do you need, do you, I see you just need socks, whatever. I don't have a problem with that but just hand somebody cash and say, see ya. I just don't typically do that. One thing we, we will do sometimes, we go into a restaurant and we'll ask if we can, if there's anything we can pray for the person, like the waitress or waiter comes up, hey, Bob, uh, waiter Bob, we're, we're, is there any, we're about ready to pray here for our food. Is there anything we could pray for you? And I have yet to see anyone go, nope, don't eat it and walk away. Usually they'll kind of like, and then they'll come back and kind of like, well, there is this one thing I need help with. And then, and then for us and for some that run in our circles, we'll leave a tip that is stupid generous. And they're like, <laughs> that we would take the time to spot them out of the crowd and be generous to them. These are just practical ways. I, I just want to share some closing thoughts because um, I want to I amp up your heart to just lean into this. Again, I wrote, many church leaders and churches try to twist what the Bible says about tithing to suit what they're trying to accomplish. I'm not that guy. Now, hear my heart. I do believe in the principle of tithing. I believe there are Old Testament principles that God sent spinning, and my wife and I have used that in our lives, and it has worked for us tremendously. I'm not saying you have to do it. I'm just saying this is what the Word of God I see as a principle that we can tap into because God says in that same Malachi, test me in this. And I can't tell you how many times my wife and I have tested God in that moment. When my wife and I pastored the A Street House in Grants Pass, we were 25, 24 going on 25 years old. And we came from a background we had, we were very well. We weren't filthy rich. Great job, great insurance, had a home, and God called us. This is just our story. doesn't need to be your story. We decided, God, we're so thankful, we're so grateful all that you've done. We sold everything we had. We didn't give it to them. We just sold it, set it aside, and moved in and begin to pastor this house. And I remember coming, looking in the pantry, and I've shared this with you, it was an empty pantry. And my wife and I said, God, you called us. We walked in the pantry, it was empty, bag of lentils. <sighs> <laughs> if you invite me to your home for a cup of lentils, that's okay, just bring two pounds of ketchup. <laughs> just, just kidding. Anyhow, 
We're in there, nothing, just except a bag of lentils. My wife's heart was, these guys are working hard. We had work projects, guys going in all these different directions, and women just trying to help them, and there was nothing. And I said, God, you brought us here. God, you're the giver of the increase. So, Father, this one's on you. We will serve you, but we need something to eat. And, and later that evening, I was upstairs. I had taken a shower. I came back down, and I could smell barbecued spare ribs. And here's these big vats of spare ribs in these two stainless steel containers. A caterer had overcooked or did something. Didn't have, he had way too much. God must have set this up because I walk in there, and we're just like <laughs> eating spare ribs, man. It was incredible. And God showed us right there that I will take care of you. Within weeks, we had a pantry that was so overflowing, pressed down, overflowing. We had to find another place to put it. Instead of giving someone who came by, if this young lady came by, and we said, well, here's half a slice of cheese and some moldy bread. I mean, literally, it was like that. We could say, here's a five-pound chunk of cheese. Here's 14 loaves of bread. That's what God did. You honor him, he honors you. That is the way it works. Wow, I'm so out of, out of mark with my notes here, but let me just finish with a couple of scriptures. Luke 3, uh, 6, 38, NIV says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap for the measure you use, it will be measured for you. I'm telling you, if you're giving it your all, and I'm not talking about your wallet, I'm talking about all of you. If you're giving it your all, I'm telling you, if you measure it out like that, it's going to be measured back to you. You cannot outgive God. Now, you do have to use wisdom. I understand that. There's time to take a sabbatical. There's time to pull back and rest, but never stop. I love the way the message says it. It says, don't pick on people. Jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. Don't condemn those who are down. That hardness can boomerang. Be easy on people, and you'll find life a lot easier. Give away your life, and you'll find life given back. Not, but not merely given back. Given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way generosity begats generosity. That is powerful. And then I want to throw out this last thing. Again, we are not commanded to tithe under the new covenant. But God has this premise, this principle, I think, that's spinning with the stars. He says, test me in this. He says, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. That happened, has happened and has happened in our own lives many times over the years. It, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord God Almighty. That's Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. So, let's stand. I'm getting delirious with the smell of pancakes. Yeah. It gets to you. Yeah. Hear my heart, guys. Honor God, and He will honor you. Honor God, and He will honor you. That's so foundational. All of you have resources. All of you have amazing gifts that I believe God wants to employ for His kingdom. Only you can determine whether or not you're letting God use those gifts in you, the resources that you have to advance the kingdom of God. Only you can decide that. You can control that. God's not going to force your hand in anything. But I believe that Jesus did raise the bar under the new covenant, and that was to become a generous people. Be the first ones that say, I'll help. Be the first ones that'll say, you know, I, I have a little extra money tucked away. I, I can help. Whatever that looks like, you get to decide. It's not being forced. <laughs>
in, in this building here, in, in, just in the church and the structure of it, we have a lot of moving parts. We have the light bills and all that stuff. And, and those are things that, that the finances that we get for that helps pay and defray all those costs. It helps tremendously. But that's not why I'm standing up here. I'm standing up here because I don't want to see you bound up and, and, and because you're just so afraid to let go of something and you don't really understand that God wants to bless you with more. Sometimes the best way out is through. Amen? Wow. Thank you, Jesus. Lewis, would you close this in prayer? I saw that hand. It, it kind of went up. <laughs> yes, Lord. All right. So we stand here, Lord, consecrated, set apart unto you. Yeah. So everything that we have, everything that we are, is yours. Yes. When we said yes, we gave it all mm. right then and there. And you continually use all of us. Yes. That's so why I thank you for that. I thank you for the grace that flows from your throne, from your very heart, every time that we look and we say, yes, God. And I thank you for the, every time that you have brought back abundance into our lives. Some have not experienced that to the degree that others, but Lord, we trust you. We trust your word, and we trust the way that you work in your amazing kingdom. And so we, right now, we just declare our lives dedicated to kingdom principles, kingdom economics, kingdom stewardship. Yeah. Right now, we're all managers of something. And so That's I pray, good. Father, right now, good. we dedicate that to you, <clears throat> and we manage it exactly as if it, it's yours. Yes. We want you to receive a return, and we thank you. Father, for everything that you've given us, small or great, and we release it to you once again with our whole heart to you right now. And we ask, Father, that you'd release a blessing, the kind of blessing that you have told us about time and time again in your word. And so we receive that by faith now, knowing that your kingdom works. You are the one in charge, and we are serving you gladly. So receive it now and ask your blessing upon this house and abundance to overflow like rivers in Jesus name Amen. Amen. quickly how many of you feel as if the wolf's been at your door way too long that's in here today that you're like you know I, I don't get it I've been trying I've been doing it and and it just seems like the wolf is always at my door wanting to steal and take. Nothing seems to be working right. Nothing seems to pan out. Well, I, I'm not going to dog you on it, but I just want to encourage you that if you feel like the wolf is knocking on your door way too much, then call me. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to one of the leaders, leaders and just say, will you pray for me? Prayer, prayer is bigger than just asking God to heal our, our physical owies. It, it, it's so many things we can be attacked from with, with the enemy in all different areas. We need prayer for that too. And that's what our heart is. We want to help you navigate these waters. Amen? Yeah. Amen. So... We'll put the chairs up, and then the pancake feed, I think Clyde kind of gave all the parameters for that, so that'll start out there in the foyer, but if you wouldn't mind help picking up some chairs, that'd be wonderful, and we'll see you all next week.